Matthew chapter 28, it says, After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were as white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Father, we are so grateful to get to be in your house today to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. We're so grateful that that you sent him to die for us, but Lord, that that was not the end of the story, that he didn't stay dead. That, That on the third day, he came out of the tomb. And because of that, death has been defeated and we have new life in you. We're so thankful for Jesus and we pray in his name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, good morning. We'd like to welcome you into Crossroads. If you're joining us here in the room, if you're joining us online, we're, we're grateful that you're here today uh, to celebrate Easter with us. This, this to us is the most important moment in human history. Uh, if, if you're visiting Crossroads or if you're not familiar with us, you don't know much about us, who we are, what we're all about, what we stand for, etc., let me just tell you that we believe firmly believe that the moment in in history when Jesus walked out of the tomb that we celebrate today, that is the moment where we hinge our faith. That everything we believe about Jesus, about the Bible, about our faith, about Christianity in general, is all based and dependent upon an empty tomb. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the apostle Paul said, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, then we are more more to be pitied than anyone in the world. Think about that for just a moment. If everything that we believe hinges on a death that, that somebody died and stayed dead, he's saying that it's all for naught, that everything we do and everything we think and believe and preach is false, and that we are to be pitied for that, But he goes on to say in verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The empty tomb of Jesus is proof that he not only raised from the dead, but conquered death, hell, and the grave. And because of that, we have hope, not for this world, but for the world to come. We have the hope of salvation that Christ provided for us, and we have the assurance that nothing in the world can separate us from the love of God. In the the New Testament, all four of the Gospels talk about the resurrection of Jesus. But I think something that's interesting in the story is none of them actually tell us about Jesus walking out of the tomb. It's kind of a key detail that they they don't include there, right? Like none of them just say, and the stone rolled away and Jesus took very long strides. Or maybe Jesus sauntered out of the tomb. I don't know. Maybe he did a touchdown dance coming out of the tomb. I'm not really sure how, how he did this, you know. Think about Kelsey doing a dance in the Super Bowl. Maybe Jesus did something like that. I don't know. It doesn't tell us that. All they tell us is that when the friends of Jesus showed up at the tomb, they found it to be empty, and that his body was never found, at least not a body that would be taken and hidden somewhere to try to show that maybe he came out of the grave, or nobody was ever able to disprove that he didn't come out of the grave. They just simply tell us that the grave was empty. 
But it goes on from there because the story doesn't stop there. In fact, the Gospels go on. There's another chapter or two in each particular Gospel. And, and they go on to talk about almost six more weeks of time, 40 days that Jesus walked the earth after he had resurrected. And 13 times the Gospels tell us about an encounter he has with somebody else after the resurrection. Uh, for example, the women on the road, he, he meets them. He meets his disciples when they're fishing one time. Uh, on and on Again, 13 examples of moments that Jesus met somebody after he had resurrected from the dead, all the way up until he gives a great commission statement and then he ascends back into heaven. That great commission is how the gospel of Matthew ends. He ends it with this statement. Maybe you know it. It's what a lot of churches are based on and founded on. In Matthew chapter 28, it says, Then Jesus came to them, that's his disciples, came to them and he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And then I love this little promise he gives them. And surely I am with you always to the end of the age. That's how Jesus left this earth. That's, that's the story goes on that after he said those words and then he says something that's recorded in Acts chapter 1, he ascends up into heaven with the Father where we believe that's where he still is today. But what I want to do with, with today, with, with my time this morning, is look at this statement of Jesus and actually go backward a couple of verses because there's an interesting little line here that's easy to pass over, especially when you know the Gospel of Matthew. Because you know the Great Commission, you know that it's coming, right? A couple of verses before, look what's said here. In Matthew 28, it says, Then the eleven disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some of them doubted. And then he does the Great Commission, and then he ascends into heaven. Let me ask you a question here. How many of you have ever found yourself in a similar place to the disciples in this particular spot. Full of faith in Jesus, but also with many, many doubts. Uh, like, you don't have to show me your hands. I'm guessing probably most of you would raise your hands if I asked you to do that. There's times in life where you can feel incredibly close to God. God feels very present, very real, very active in your life. And then maybe something happens and just suddenly you don't feel that anymore. You start questioning you start wondering, you start being curious if, if God's really out there. We've been having these conversations with my 10-year-old uh, in the last week or so. She started asking me questions about God, and, and she even asked the question the other night, Dad, how can I even know if God's real? I said, well, why would you ask that? Because he doesn't give me everything that I ask for. <laughs> questions of a 10-year-old, right? Fifth grade, man, it's uh, pushing these kids to the ringer. Life is totally not fair. She got to go to her first soccer game last night, but life is totally not fair, you know, because not everything breaks her way. We had an Easter egg hunt yesterday morning in our neighborhood, and her age group had to wait, and they ran out of eggs, and life is just not fair. God must not be real, right? And we can laugh, but there's times we ask the same question. And maybe it's not about Easter eggs or about getting, getting to do certain things with friends or somebody not calling back, but we'll start to ask questions, is God real because of something that hits us the same way in perspective to where we're at in life? There's times, I think, that our doubts have been, been the this, this spillover of frustrations that we've had in life, and, and they'll spill over into our spiritual lives as well, too. Maybe those doubts have been fueled by the world around you. 
bad things are happening around you, or maybe you're just stuck in a rut in life right now. Things aren't clicking your way. Man, I've been there. I get that. Maybe for you, your doubts have been fueled by the church itself. Maybe you've seen hypocrisy in a church, because my goodness, we've all done that. Or maybe you have, have lived in a church where somebody in that church has hurt you, and that's caused doubts in your mind, and those doubts have pushed you away from the church. If that's the case, can I just say I'm sorry? Whether that's this church or any other church, I'm sorry that's happened to you. Maybe you've had doubts that have pushed you away from the church, and that's where you find yourself now. You find yourself running in a different direction, and you're only here today, or you're only watching online because somebody invited you to, and you felt like you should. Or maybe, you know, maybe you're here, let's be honest, because you kind of got guilted into coming. Or maybe you're here just because you didn't want to let somebody down. Maybe you're here today because your doubts have pushed you into a position where you have run in the wrong direction for a long time now, and you've left a wake of messiness and brokenness and hurt people behind you in the process of that. And you're only here today because you know what you've done, but you heard that Jesus might love somebody like you anyway, and you wanted to see what that's all about. Can I just say that whatever brought you here today, I'm glad you're here. Whatever brought you into this room today, I'm so glad that you're here with us. Not because we have things all figured out. We certainly do not. We're just as broken and just as messy and just as hurt as you are. But we're glad that you're here with us today, doubts and all. Doubts can be scary. Doubts can cause fear because doubts often lead to questions that you don't have answers to. And maybe you can't find the answers to those questions. Or if you do, they're not the answers that you want. You ask questions all the time, and, and I see questions in culture, questions in, in the skeptical world. Maybe it's a question like, well, the, the Bible contradicts itself. How do you reconcile with that? Or maybe it's a question like, well, doesn't science disprove the gospel? Or maybe it's a question like, what happens to me after I die? Or, or maybe it's that big question, how could a loving God allow pain and suffering in the world? Those are honest questions. And if you ask them in the right way, they're legitimate questions. But sometimes you ask questions, and those questions push you into deeper doubts that push you into worry, which ultimately pushes you into bad decisions that pushes you into guilt and shame. And that's where some of you might find yourself today. Those questions you might be asking can sometimes lead to other feelings, frustration, anger. Maybe you feel abandoned because you've asked questions and maybe somebody in the church told you, you can't ask those questions here. I've got friends that were told they can't ask questions in a church, and they don't go to that church anymore. They don't go to any church anymore. It breaks my heart because they weren't given the opportunity to explore what their faith really actually meant. If you have doubts, let me just tell you, you're just like the rest of us. I would go so far as to say, I'd be so bold as to say, everybody in this room has had doubts about God at some point in our lives. It's what makes us human. That's where the church comes into play. Or if we're being honest, that's where the church should come into play. Too often we haven't. Far too often the church has been a deterrent in trying to help people find who Jesus really, truly is. The church has let what we do and how we do it and why we do it get in the way of people asking honest questions, trying to figure Jesus out. Maybe somebody just trying to understand how could the resurrection really actually happen? Dead people don't come back to life. Maybe that's the question that you're wanting to ask today. And, and too many times, too many things and too many people have gotten in your way. If you've been a part of Crossroads for any length of time, at least since I've been here in the last couple of years, you know that I have kind of operated on this three-word motto that I want us to adopt and, and use because I want, if, if you're visiting today and you're trying to figure things out, 
I want it to be true of who we really are. What are those three words? We know them. Belong, believe, become. We want you to belong to this body. And by belonging here, we will help you believe in who Jesus really truly is. So that by believing in him, you ultimately will find faith in him and can become like him. See, here's our thing. We have our doctrine, yes. We have our core beliefs, yes. We have our core values, yes. We just went through those in the last six weeks of a, of a teaching series. And those are firm. We stand on those. We don't, we don't move from those, those core beliefs. We're not going to move from our doctrine. We believe what we believe because it's what the Bible says. But folks, we have to understand something too. You can't become so rigid that the moment you're pushed and the moment pressure comes, you snap. We see this. You pick up a stick that maybe has just come off of a tree and it, it still has a little bit of life in it and you try to break that and what happens? It flexes. It gives, it bends, and you let go, it pops back into shape. But if you find one that's been laying on the ground for months, kind of that dead wood, you pick it up and you start to bend it, what happens? It shatters. And too often, as followers of Jesus, we can be the exact same way. If we have no give whatsoever, the moment pressure hits us, we'll snap. We'll shatter, we'll break, and we'll be useless. I, I think far too often, we've seen people who have grown up in the church as soon as pressure got to them, they broke. And I think part of that, if I look back, especially at some of the people I've known where this has happened, they've had questions that weren't answered. They were told what to believe, but they weren't told why to believe it. And I think that's a key thing when it comes to your, your faith, when it comes to what you believe, we have to be able to explore the why. It can't just be the what, it can't just be the how. We are, are moving more and more into an increasingly less black and white world in terms of our culture and what we believe to be right and wrong. And when young people especially, or, or people who are young in the faith, when they're not able to explore why they're being told to believe what, what we're believing, the minute something happens, the minute they start to question everything. Maybe it's as simple as somebody giving them a twisted angle of a biblical truth. We see this in with Jesus even, when he's tempted in the wilderness by, by Satan. Satan takes biblical truth, he takes scripture, and it's about 99.9% .9 accurate. There's just one little twist in there. Of course, Jesus being Jesus, he catches that, but some of us, we may not. And you might believe that, and then one more little twist here, and one more little twist there, and one more little twist, till eventually we start to believe something that's not true at all. Or, or maybe it's a non-believer pointing out hypocrisy within the church or hypocrisy within church leadership. And as a young believer with, with not a real strong faith yet, that might be hard to reconcile. Or, or maybe you see a, a church leader hit a moral failure and the ministry crumble around him. Maybe you just see something bad happen in your own life or in the lives of somebody around you and you have a hard time to reconcile that. All of these can be marks that can cause doubts, that can cause questions, that can cause fear, and frustration if we're not given the chance to explore our faith. But here's the good news about faith, and I want you to understand this. Faith is a journey, it's not a destination. Our end-all, be-all is not that you would find faith in Jesus, it's that you would come to faith in Jesus and walk with him so that you could become more like him. That's what faith is all about. That's why we refer to this as the walk with Christ, that we're walking with him Step by step, day after day, trying to become more like him. And let me just say this. If you're new to this journey of faith, 
Maybe you're not new, but you have questions anyway, but especially if you are new, we welcome your questions. We may not have the answers, and and let's be honest, the answers may not be what you want, but we welcome your questions anyway. The church should be the absolute safest place for you to bring your questions about God. It should be safe and welcoming and inviting. And again, we want you to feel welcome and belong to this body, to this family, this community, so that you can learn to believe in Jesus because only through belief in Jesus will you find faith in Jesus and learn how to become like him. Believing in Jesus is great, but we have to be honest, that's not the point. Belief and faith aren't the same thing here. Maybe you've heard this, but belief and and faith are kind of like cousins. They're not quite the same thing. Belief is accepting that something is true or that it exists. Belief requires usually evidence. It requires uh, something that you can see. I believe if I drop my Bible, it's going to hit the ground. I know how gravity works, right? But what's faith? Faith is complete trust in someone or something, even if you can't see the whole picture, even if you don't have all the evidence. Let's kind of illustrate how these work together, belief and faith here. Let's say that this afternoon, uh, we decide to go skydiving. You join me, and we're going to go skydiving. I I hesitate to say this because at sunrise service, front row, somebody goes, yeah, let's go. I'm like, okay, this was a joke. I'm not going skydiving, okay? No, I prefer to stay in a perfectly working airplane, not jump out of one, okay? But let's just say for the sake of argument, we're going skydiving. And I tell you how it's going to work. We're going to get in the plane. The plane's going to accelerate. When the plane hits a certain speed, uh, all the aerodynamics are going to cause it to lift into the air. It's going to glide across the sky for a while. And then for some reason, we're going to put these backpacks on and strap them around our bodies and jump out of this plane that is fully functional. And we're going to fall at terminal velocity until we decide to pull on this cord. And then this parachute's going to pop out, basically yank you hard enough to break every bone in your body. But we're going to do it anyway because it's fun, okay? (laughs) and then float majestically back to the earth. I can tell you that, and you can believe that because you've seen that. But what's faith? Faith is actually jumping out of the airplane and believing that when you go to pull that cord, it's going to pop open and work. When it comes to Jesus, simply believing in him is not enough because it shows us in James chapter 2 that even the demons believe in Jesus. The demons who are condemned to hell, who are stuck in hell, they believe in Jesus. Folks, you can have perfect theology, perfect beliefs, perfect doctrine. uh, You can have perfect deeds even. But none of it matters if you don't put your faith in Jesus to become the Lord of your life. It says in Ephesians chapter 2 that it's by grace you've been saved through faith. The grace of God gives you salvation, but your faith in him accepts that salvation and puts it into your life. Often we want to know everything that there is to know about something before we decide to put our faith in it. Even down to to a restaurant or a movie, we want to know everything about it. If I recommend something to you, you want to investigate it and find out for yourself before we put our faith in that. With Jesus, you don't have to have him all figured out to put your faith in him. And let me just take that a step further. You can't have him all figured out. God is so big, we can't wrap our mind completely around him. Faith is a journey, it's not a destination. Faith is something that we grow in along the way, something that we grow in along the the journey. The destination is heaven. The destination is in becoming more like Christ. And along that destination, along that journey until we get to heaven, 
There will be bumps in the road. There will be detours that knock us off course. There will be moments that pop up and we're not really sure if we're still going in the same direction sometimes. Just like you get lost on a windy road in the fog sometimes. And here's what I want to say about this. If you have doubts in the midst of that, that is okay. I would say it like this. The strongest faith isn't a faith that never doubts. The strongest faith is a faith that grows through your doubts. It's a faith that lets doubts forge it by fire, so to speak. Help it to grow. Help it to get stronger. Help it to be formed in the image and the likeness of God. Let's, let's jump back to the resurrection of Jesus, because that's kind of what we're supposed to be talking about this morning. <laughs> John chapter 20, we read about Jesus resurrecting in, in John's gospel, and then what happens afterwards. And some of the people that he meets earliest on are his disciples. In fact, that night, that Sunday morning he resurrects, that Sunday evening, they're gathered in an upper room, probably the very same upper room they were in just a couple of days earlier for the Last Supper when Jesus washed their feet and, and had his last meal with them. And when he appears to them, he, he encourages them, but he also gives them another challenge. As the Father sent me, I am sending you. Great commission statement that Jesus gives his disciples. But then he leaves. And it says in verse 24 of John chapter 20, that one of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, other translations will call him Didymus, they, he was not with the others when Jesus came. And they told him, we have seen the Lord. Now, in an interesting spot here where it says, we have seen the Lord, this is an active tense verb. In other words, this is a verb that is being basically repeated over and over. They're, they're telling Thomas, they're, they're so excited, we have seen the Lord. Thomas, we saw Jesus. Thomas, he was here. It's kind of like this. You ever had that friend that discovers a new show on Netflix and will not shut up about it? That's basically what the disciples are doing here. You've got to watch this. It's the greatest show of all time. I'm that friend, by the way. I usually discover it three or four years after it's quit airing. So, like, hey, this show is great. You mean that show that won, like, 25 Emmys? Yeah, it's phenomenal. Have you ever heard of it? You know, that's me because I don't keep up with, with the times. But that's beside the point. I'm relevant in some areas, not very many. <laughs> that's how excited they are though and they're telling him over and over and over look at Thomas's response in verse 25 but he said I will not believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands and put my fingers into them and place my hand to the wound of his side Thomas doesn't believe it he, he's struggling to come to grips with this and that's why he has a nickname some of you probably know it. somebody say it. What's, what's Thomas's nickname Doubting Thomas, right? Let me just say something. I think Thomas gets a bad rap here. I think this is a terrible nickname for Thomas. Because Thomas is reacting exactly like I would. I mean, let's think about this for just a moment here. Thomas has seen his close friend be brutally murdered, buried, and now three days later, hey, he's back. If I'm Thomas, I'm like, okay, you're in complete denial. You're in the denial stage of grief now, okay? Like, it's okay. I'm here for you. Like, I'm, I'll be the one trying to comfort them. Do we need to talk through this? Like, sorry, Joe is not with us anymore. It's time to let go, you know? That's probably where I would be here. And I think this makes Thomas maybe the most relatable of these disciples, I mean, yeah, they all had traits that we can relate to. Peter was pretty hot-headed and pretty impulsive at times. James and John argued over who was the most important. 
Judas was greedy. Anybody relate to any of those traits right there? But Thomas, Thomas is hurting over the loss of a friend. And now he's being told something by his closest friends that is hard to believe because he's being told something that sounds completely and totally impossible because it's completely and totally impossible. Unless you're God. And they still hadn't fully figured out that Jesus was God at this point. I think Doubting Thomas is the wrong nickname for him. I think he should just be called Honest Thomas or Curious Thomas because he's just asking questions. He just needs to know. A few days earlier, Jesus had had his last meal with his disciples. He had, had eaten with them, and then he washed their feet. And after all of that, you might remember this in John 14, he tells them, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And I'm going to go prepare that place, and then I'm going to come back and get you and take you with me. And who is it that asks the question? It's Thomas. What does he say in John 14? Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how do we know the way? And of course, Jesus replies to that great line, I am the way and the truth and the life. And I read this because Thomas isn't asking this or the questions Later in John 20, he's not trying to be difficult. He's not trying to be contrary. He's not trying to challenge Jesus. He just really needs to know. I have an eight-year-old who is exactly like this. She asks questions that I do not have answers to. They're not big, huge, like life-altering questions. It's like, Dad, why is that truck blue? I don't know, Amelie. I guess that's what color they wanted to paint it. But why did, they, why did they pick blue? I don't know, Amelie, because that's what color they wanted to paint it. But why didn't they paint it green? I don't know, Amelie. Why is it a truck instead of a car? I don't know, Amelie. To the point where I'm finally like, okay, I cannot handle another one of your questions right now. Because it's just over and over and over. And it's not like Titus, my five-year-old, who will ask the same question on repeat? His new one is that classic in the car question. Parents, you know what it is. Are we there yet? Not yet, buddy. Are, like literally as soon as I answer the question. Now are we there yet? Now, no. <laughs> and if you keep asking, you're not going to get there because I'm leaving you right here alongside the road. <laughs> Parents, you understand this. So like, have <laughs> you seen that Star Wars meme? It shows Yoda when he's like 900 years old. And it says, as a parent, I finally understood Yoda where enough questions were asked, I just wanted to roll over and die. <laughs> okay? I'm so thankful Jesus isn't like me, though. Because he doesn't get tired of your questions. If you come to Jesus and you ask his questions humbly, you come to him in a posture of humility, you come to him in a posture of, I just really want to know. I, I told told the Brad and the elders and, and Tracy this when I first got here. I'm probably going to ask you a lot of questions. I just need to know. I'm not trying to say, well, why do you do it this way? Like with a snark. Like, no, why do we do it this way? Because I need to know. If you come to Jesus with a humility in your heart, he will take your questions. He can handle your questions, and he will respond to your questions. It may not always be in the way that you want or like or need or exactly when you want it, but he will respond to you. Look how he responds to Thomas. Back in John 20, it says a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them this time. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them, and he said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, 
Uh, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. I think it's easy to read this and think that those last four words, Jesus got a little firm here. I don't think that's the case. I don't read that tone in this scripture. Yeah, sometimes Jesus got firm with people because he knew they should know better. Peter's a good example. I think there's times that he might have even reached out and grabbed the shoulders of the person he was talking to and almost gave him a shake, going, no, stop and listen, because it's somebody who should know better. I don't think that's the case with Thomas, because I think he understands Thomas is still grieving the loss of a friend. And I think he's just simply trying to say, Thomas, here I am. Whatever you need to do, do this so that you will believe And look at Thomas' response in verse 28. He exclaims, my Lord and my God. Jesus met Thomas in the middle of his doubts. And Thomas, in that moment, went from doubting to shouting. He was all in for Jesus. Your doubts can derail your faith if you follow your doubts to wherever they may lead you. If you follow your doubts to more doubts and into what the world will answer to fill in the gaps of that, yes, your doubts could absolutely lead you in the wrong direction. But if your doubts are humble and and you bring a posture of that humility in them and a posture of seeking the word and truly diving into them, and let's be honest too, church, if we're welcoming and humble alongside those doubters, your doubts can actually be a catalyst for a faith to grow that is far stronger than you could ever imagine having otherwise. I love how Oswald Chambers said it. Doubt is not always a sign that a man is wrong. It may be a sign that he is thinking. I I grew up in a church where it was kind of impressed and told when you doubt, it's a sign that your faith is weak. And I don't think that the people who told me that were, were trying to be misguiding. I don't think they were trying. I think they were just sincere, and I think that's what they believed, that it's, it's the other way around. You know, you need your faith to be strong, and asking a lot of questions, sometimes you just have to believe, and that's true. Sometimes you just have to believe, but doubts are not a sign of a weak faith. Let me, let me reassure you of that, and what I want to do is just give you two very quick thoughts to kind of close this out today, two very quick thoughts that this story tells us about doubts. If you have them today, that's okay. That's okay, because we've all been there. Some of us are there right now alongside you. But here's two thoughts about doubts that I want you to remember when it comes to questioning anything to do with God. Number one, God is not distant in your doubts. He is there with you. He is always close by. Jesus is not some standoffish savior. He's not one to look at a question that you asked and say, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Go away until you come back with a better question. Now, I do think if you are snarky about it, you quiz and question Jesus in a way to be snarky, you may feel like he's standoffish. That doesn't mean that he is. Maybe that's your posture and not his. I know that's been the case with me sometimes. Jesus was always willing to help honest doubters meet their doubts head on. We see this in the Gospels throughout. Even if your doubts have led you to a messy and broken life, Jesus will get right in the middle of your messiness and brokenness with you to get you out of it. We see this again many times in the Gospels. No matter how far away from him you might feel today, he is no further than an arm's reach away. You reach out to him, he's going to reach right back to you. He's ready for your questions and he can handle them. So bring them to him. Here's my second thought. The greatest doubters can become the strongest believers. The greatest doubters can become the strongest believers. 
Again, if you're being told that doubt is a sign of weak faith, don't listen to that. Don't listen to that lie. And the enemy might even be using somebody to tell you that lie who doesn't even realize they're being used. It might be well-intentioned. It might be out of love. It might be somebody just trying to say that as a way to encourage your faith. But at at its core, that's not the truth of Scripture. Don't listen to the enemy. Instead, listen for the Holy Spirit to draw you through your doubts, to pull you through to the other side. We see this with Thomas. Thomas had honest, legitimate doubts, and yet he worked through them. And what do we see Thomas on the other side of this? Well, when you read some extra biblical literature from the first century, you see that Thomas lived for almost 40 more years, and he radically and boldly preached the gospel of Jesus even in the face of death. In fact, he preached it all the way until he was executed in the name of Jesus some 38 years later. Thomas let his doubts turn him into a warrior for Christ, a a dedicated follower. If you allow your faith to be molded and shaped by your doubts to come through on the other side, you will have a faith that's no longer shaken by the world, but instead a faith that will shake and rattle the world around you, that will make an impact and a difference for Jesus. So here's what we say about this faith. Faith isn't the absence of doubt, but faith is the means to push through your doubt. It's a journey, it's not a destination. We think about faith and what it means. It's not what we're ultimately striving for, it's the means to get us to where we're trying to get. It's by faith, by grace that we're saved through faith that we believe that. Today we're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus and it's very easy to proclaim Christ is risen today. We can shout it all over the place. I've seen it all over social media today from people who might come to church on Easter. That's okay. They're proclaiming a truth. But folks, what if we all lived a life where our faith told people Christ is risen? Our faith told people that Jesus is Lord. Easter is the day that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, the day that he defeated death, hell, and the grave, and he walked out of the tomb for us. And he gave us the opportunity to put our faith in him. He went to the cross, as we'll take communion here in just a little bit. He went to the cross and shed his blood and was broken to take our sins away. But he walked out of that tomb so that we could believe in him, so that we could put our hope and our faith and our trust in him and get the life that comes with that, that resurrected eternal life so we could one day walk those streets of heaven with him. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for him. We're so grateful for Jesus. God, we're grateful that he was obedient to the cross. But more than that, God, that that he walked out of that tomb. And because of that, we we understand everything has changed. The resurrection changes everything. And it's able to give us a boldness like the disciples had who were hiding in fear a few days earlier. The resurrected Christ gave them the courage to stand in the face of their fears, to stand in the face of the same persecutors they were hiding from weeks earlier because of the faith was radically changed through you. God, I pray for anybody here today who's struggling in faith, maybe who has doubts. God, you would meet them where they're at. And if you're already there, you would remind them that you're there. And you would help us as a church walk alongside them 
to help lead them through the doubts that they're facing. God, so that one day we can all declare that great hymn of heaven, praising your name forevermore. God, we're so grateful for Jesus. We pray today in his name.